Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Hey, guys. Sorry, my voice is a little uh, raspy today. I'm recovering from a cold bequeathed to be by the uh, two-year-old Petri dish who lives in my house and goes by the name of Alexander. Anyway, I digress. Um, this uh, podcast is going to sound a little different because we recorded it in the field, and I have a co-host on this podcast. It's um, one of my favorite uh, meditation teachers, Jeff Warren. You may have heard the podcast we recorded with him uh, a couple weeks ago. Jeff and I did this whole big cross-country meditation tour uh, a few weeks ago, and one of the people we met uh, on the way was Chief uh, Sylvia Moyer from the uh, Tempe Arizona Police Department. By the way, that's how you pronounce Tempe. Um, uh, it's not Tempe, as I always thought. Anyway, uh, uh, Chief uh, Moyer is uh, a meditator, and uh, she's pretty new uh, at the uh, department in Tempe and um, has been uh, trying to get her folks there to meditate and has gotten a lot of buy-in. And this comes, of course, at a really interesting time in the relationship between uh, the community and the police department and communities all over the country and police departments, a very tense time. And there's some thinking in some quarters that um, teaching cops how to meditate may uh, uh, have some real benefit. And you're going to hear from a, an extremely articulate and very tough-minded person who's trying to put this uh, into practice. So I give you uh, Chief Sylvia Moyer along with uh, Jeff Warren, who you'll hear uh, conducting the questioning with me. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Chief, thank you. Appreciate it. I, I, I realize I've been spending much of my life mispronouncing the name of your fair city. I did the very same thing. I was corrected in the interview process when I was testing to come to the Tempe team. And they said, well, do you say Tempe or Tempe? And I said, well, I say Tempe now. And they said, you should change that. It's Tempe. Yeah, so I did the same thing. <laughs> How did you get into meditation? It was an interesting kind of pathway for me. I was a student at the Naval Postgraduate School. I was a practicing chief of police in the San Francisco Bay Area. And I read an article by Lieutenant Richard Gearling. And I found it to be compelling in what the mindfulness practice offered for the United States military and in the private sector. And I thought, huh. I wonder if there's something that would make sense in policing to help us as police officers, as police executives, uh, help us help our people with... Let yeah. me just jump in and sure. explain who Lieutenant Richard Gerling is. He's, uh, he's a police officer in Portland, Oregon, who found meditation and has been using it in his sure. own work and his own uh, department, and he's become sort of a national evangelist among police officers. He has. And I think there's a lot, he brings science, he brings reason, he brings credibility. And what he does is he sets a stage that uh, is really easy for skeptics to dive in and start engaging in the practices. I think Richard really wrote in an interesting way. And at the time, I was not only in the Naval Postgraduate School as a student and a chief, but I was also connected with the board of the California Police Chiefs Association. And we were examining training that we deliver not only to executives in policing, but to police officers. 
And so it was a natural thing for me to be inquisitive and ask him what it was about and would there be applications that we could provide um, in policing in California start from there. So that was, my entry was inquiring, connecting with him, diving into the science, and then I became a uh, kind of a practitioner. Kind of a practitioner? Kind of. What do you mean by that? You know, I, I just thought, well, what is this uh, crunchy granola thing out of, yeah, <laughs> out of Oregon? And uh, I was, I, I am a, um, I think someone said a fidgety, for fidgety skeptics, I'm a fidgety skeptic. I'm one of those people that I've never been bored a moment in my life because I've always got things happening in my head. And I thought meditation meant that I had to cease thinking and engage in something different. I said, well, if that's what it is, I'll never be able to do it. Uh, so um, I could describe my path kind of later to being a practitioner and then bringing the promises of the practice to policing and what that's like. How did you get over that hump? I, I really did it, Dan, by just saying, look, this isn't about me. This is about diving into a potential practice that if it creates meaning, if it helps guardians, police officers with the uh, acute, chronic, and cumulative stress and the toxicity of this work, then I absolutely have a responsibility to learn more, and if it makes sense, bring it to policing. Was it li liberating to realize that you don't have to stop thinking? It was, it was mind-blowing because I thought, I'm going to be sitting there, and I uh, am you know, distracted by a lot of things, and I thought, I'm going to hear some clock ticking. I'm going to hear a bird. I'm going to, as a police officer, I'm going to hear footsteps, and I'm going to want to react to those footsteps to kind of safeguard people and this heightened awareness that police officers always have to have. I thought, I'm never going to be able to do it. And mindfulness gave me permission. I kind of describe it like this. Mindfulness is, is awareness and this non-judgmental attention to the kind of evolving experience that we're having. And as a practitioner, uh, I learned that it's okay. Recognize that there's a distraction. I always say thank you because I want to be in gratitude and I just say thank you for that distraction and I come back peacefully. So the fact that I got permission to do that and to drift every once in a while and it was okay was the liberating permission for me. Yeah, amazing. Uh, uh, so, so well said. The, um, we've been, this, this moment of realizing that you got distracted, mm. that the intelligent move of saying thank you and going back to it, I mean, that is such a smart move that most people don't realize how important that is mm. because when you, if you're actually getting frustrated at that moment instead, you're training yourself to never want to kind of notice because it's going to be, yes. you're not going to get a reward. But if you're saying thank you, it's like you're just creating a totally friendly inner climate that then actually increases the possibilities of you being able to to, to concentrate more fully. It's so, only take, it's only taken me eight years to learn. That. Yeah, I mean, just like that's you just figured it out right away. Yeah, that's super helpful, <laughs> and I really attribute it to the way we were guided, because I think so often by we have your initial this, teacher, you mean? Yes. Yeah, and this two and a half day immersion that that we went through with Richard, with, with yeah. Richard and his and his co-partner, his co-teacher. And so I think what it did for me was uh, give me permission. And I think so often we need that in order to be something different than a construct that we have, an idea or a notion that we have. And so that was incredibly helpful for me, and that's a part of my practice. Uh, I, I really practice gratitude a lot. I say thank you for 
the people that come at me with anger, I say thank you for things that I used to fight against, and it's given me a really interesting kind of path since. But I would, I would imagine a lot of people listening to this would be like, well, what kind of police officers are saying thank you to the people coming after me with anger and, uh, you know, all yeah. the difficult things. You guys are out here, you know, to kind of handle all the problems. So if you're t saying thank you to all of them, then how are we going to get rid of the problems? Dan, I, I wouldn't believe these <laughs> words are coming out of my mouth, and I believe them in my soul 20 years ago. I've been in policing for since 1988, totally different era. And... Um, I think it's an evolution, really, and I think um, that by saying thank you, I'm not fighting against it. Exactly. We, we talk a lot in the executive circles of policing and really among some amazing thought leaders, and we, we talk a lot about the corrosive drip of policing and that each event is this corrosive drip, and by, by really having practices that help us build resilience and I think gratitude is part of it. Saying thank you for that experience but for that suffering and finding meaning in this suffering and yeah. um, and fighting against this kind of thinking, I think it would be really difficult. Yeah, it's interesting. You're, um, it's actually an even deeper practice than, there's already the practice of just accepting what's coming, that welcoming thing that mm -hmm. you, you uh, cultivate in meditation, the equanimity but the gratitude is like an extra level on top of it because it's, it's implicit. what's implicit in it is saying there's a lesson in this. There's something for me to learn about this experience. Without like a doubt. It has meaning, and that honors the experience. Uh, it puts a whole new level onto things, and I think that you, I guess your teachers are really good or you've got good instincts, but that's, that's what I'm hearing. That's, th thank you for that because it's really, to me that's a really key to remaining open-hearted. I mean, policing is this incredible profession that I don't think people have, uh, you say going under the hood, that's actually kind of creepy in cop terms. I, terms, I say uh, pull back the curtain mm -hmm. to kind of demystify. Mm -hmm. And I think I've found police officers to be incredible people, that we view our responsibility, our duty in this call as we are guardians always and warriors when we need to be. And I think your experience with the men and women of Tempe Police earlier today probably illustrated that for you. Yeah, They're just, very kind, compassionate people, but tough as nails, too. Just to fill that in, uh, we, we spent some time with the, many of your officers earlier, and you know, these are folks who are like sort of wholeheartedly embracing the, the, uh, the practice of meditation. And I was pressing them, I was like, you know, uh, how, a lot of people will be like, this is, you, you're gonna lose your edge. You know, you need to be tough on this job. And, and they were saying, actually, this makes us better because we're not at war with our own internal experiences. We're more aware of what the kind of stress we're feeling. We're not taking whatever aggression came out in the last call into yeah. the next call. So we're better at connecting with the people we're out there protecting and serving. I agree with you and I think it takes courage. It takes courage because there's this narrative around police officers that that we are hard and tough and cynical. And I think tough and hard and cynical perhaps in one kind of description. But I think it's, it's totally courageous to engage in a way that helps us experience what's unfolding and to be authentic in the way that we're delivering service and we're interpreting this environment. I think one of the promising things that mindfulness offers, besides this incredibly important resilience piece and expanding perspective piece, is uh, 
I think the promise will be in understanding the path of others, the experience of others, that our fair and impartial policing practices will be enhanced as a result of mindfulness practices because it's free of judgment. It's free of, of kind of um, identifying what you're going to experience and just taking in what this unfolding experience offers. And I think there's real promise for all of us. Um, just curious if you ever had um, any kind of real challenge trying to apply it. You know, our words were just like, you were trying to apply the principles, but man, it's so hard in this particular situation. Yeah. You know, fatigue is one of those. <clears throat> I think always, it's this interesting place than where I sit now. It takes incredible administrative and professional courage to, courage to encourage uh, the practices of meditation and policing. Because people are like, what are you talking about? Like, you're really, yes, because of the very question that you asked the officers earlier. They're like, what are you talking about? This is going to make you lose your edge. You're going to be soft. Uh, what about the tactical necessity of, of the job? Uh, how, uh, what about the, you know, the, you have to make split-second decisions and be tactically sound. I offer that it makes us more tactically sound. I am not, one of the big challenges I have now is cultivating the discipline not to be a street cop. And so let me tell you what that means for me is um, I am not a field operator anymore. I don't get to go into a police car and touch people and go into neighborhoods and, and connect with people and be the first-hand person that gets to reduce harm in a neighborhood. I serve the men and women that serve the community. And I think the challenge is I use meditative practices, mindfulness practices differently. I use them in this room. I used them in this room earlier. I meet with a variety of groups. The, the different things that I engage with as a police executive now range from uh, budgets, personnel, strategy, policy, uh, community engagement, development internally, identifying strategic priorities for us. And I meet with a lot of people that are really angry I meet with people that are suffering, that don't feel they've been served by the justice system. And so I do it in this room with family members who have lost someone, that officers that have done wrong and I'm holding them accountable. And so I have to use it differently. Yeah. I use it in a very static environment where I'm not using mindfulness practices as many of our field uniformed officers are is they're using it to enhance their, their cognitive ability and all the other things that we talked about. So I think the challenge is I'm triggered like any other human being. And the challenge is using it in the process of meeting with people that are in stress and distress. And it's also uh, for a lot of people take out their anger on me and it's in those moments where I have to really engage but also listen. Engage yeah. with the practices, but also listen. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. Does, I'm just curious, does it feel any different uh, applying them in, in this context than it did when you were on the street, or is it just it's the same thing? I'm just wondering if there's any... You know. I think it's a little different here because I'm the chief. People look to me for these micro-cues, my face, any coloring, any uh, eyebrow that'll go up, a squint uh, that I think they look to me for micro-cues for feedback. 
so I have to be very All right. aware of how I'm practicing it and also stay completely engaged with listening. Totally. So you basically, you have got to walk the talk. That's the thing about when you're teaching. You're modeling it all the time, and you are modeling it in a way that's like mm-hmm. next level because you have so many people who are looking to you. I think you're giving me too much credit, though. I don't think I'm teaching it. <laughs> you teach I, it in the, 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 in the way you hold yourself. I mean, it's sort of like perhaps. there's explicit teaching and what you're in oh. actually pointing out the principles, but then there's implicit teaching and just like, you know, talking about the practice and in the way you talk about it and the way you carry yourself, it becomes obvious that mm. there's something going on there. That's actually the part that I think people are most influenced by in a way. It's, it's basically role models because mm. you hold it in our body language. You hold it in your, and uh, how you are. Perhaps. And you can't, I mean, it's hard to fake that. I think it's hard to fake anything. It's like, I love being in Tempe. I love being a cop. I love being a chief uh, that I, of people, for people, and to identify those things that make a difference in the lives of our, our employees internally, our professional staff, and our sworn staff, they can all benefit from this. I think we are committed wholly to, we have five key initiatives. Always the first one for any police department is address and reduce crime and the fear of crime. On the other end of that, our fifth key initiative is employee development and resilience. And this is one piece of that. The other piece, it's the permission to, to grow wholly and to develop as an entire human being and as a police practitioner. Yeah. Can you say more about that? Because that's an interesting philosophy to have as a chief of police. I think it's amazing. But that idea of moving towards full development of the person. So I think what it argues is we think, I think in most professions, we think I'm going to develop you as a journalist. And so you're going to look at these, this knowledge base and uh, perhaps in policing, it is there, there's knowledge, but there's also the ability to analyze and synthesize and evaluate. So it's some higher order thinking. It also argues that we are developing people in terms of their experiences. And we're developing the whole person. So developing heart and mind, I guess. And saying, look, in policing, it's essential that we respond, we don't react. And this is really interesting evolution that's occurring in Tempe. So I took over for a chief that had been here for a lot of years. And he did some, some amazing things. And he had his very own culture. And as the culture in the organization now is, I think, becoming a little bit different. We are contemplative. We respond. Uh, we we don't um, uh, react to things in a way that would be like the fire of the day. We are very um, we think and we respond as uh, in a different way. I think to develop the whole person is to say that you're not just who you are here. Mm-hmm. It's inclusive practices that you can be everything that you are spiritually or uh, th- what makes up the whole person. And whoever you are, you are welcome here. And you don't have to spend time and energy being something that you're not in order to assimilate to what you believe a culture Hmm. will accept. So I think some of that is overt, some of it's covert. uh, And I think that we are giving broader permission for people to, to be and to serve our community as guardians of people in the way that is right for them and the community that they serve. And I think it might be a little bit different. I, I think there are a lot of incredible police executives that are doing some amazing things in this realm. 
What does your meditation practice look like? What do you do? It's ugly, Dan. Yeah, well, mine, <laughs> mine too. It's Dan, at my age, I can't do the cross-legged on the floor thing. I can't do it either. Yeah. I sit I'm, in a chair. I'm a chair. I'm yeah. a chair kind of person. So, you know, I have some routines. I haven't completely habituated my meditative practice. I, uh, Some of it, I have habit in the early morning, and I, I like to run and get my juices flowing and then I meditate. Um, it is sitting and it is following a guided app that has helped me. It reminds me to give myself permission to say, okay, this is a distraction, but this unfolding experience is thank you and uh, just follow it. Um, and I try, so the practice, what it looks like specifically is me sitting in a chair going through a guided app when I'm alone. If I'm here in my office, I'll just close the door for just a 10 minute tune up uh, because the daily life of a police executive in a municipality like Tempe is, you know, 6.30 in the morning till tonight, I think we're done around 10. And the array of wow. subjects that we engage with are, some are really heavy. And uh, some are more light and we get to be innovative and plan for the future. But I will just sit in, in a chair and just be. And mine really is centered around an expression of gratitude for, you know, health and clarity and just really humbling being in the position that I'm in here. Yeah. It's interesting. The, the gratitude probably gives you resilience in a sense. It gives you energy. Hmm. It gives you, you know, it's like hmm. taking a moment to have that kind of appreciation or it helps, you know, kind of connects you to a feeling of meaning and energy. I'm just trying to understand how that supports uh, what you do here, because it seems fundamental. I don't know if I have an answer for you, but I found that in all areas of my life, it's been kind of the center yeah. for me. And uh, I wasn't always aware that I was in gratitude, but in some way it's just kind of surfaced over time. I think I, I shared with you earlier that I think being a chief of police in Tempe is the most liberating professional experience of my life because I I really nothing that I do is about me Sylvia Moyer it's about the role of the chief and the men and women of the organization and so somebody I know somebody will write me a note and say you know you're probably smoking dope or something that that's really lofty and nutty and really um, but I really I believe that and it's been liberating for for me and I feel that the kind of service that we're engaged in this time in policing, people say all the time, it's the worst time to be a cop. <laughs> Since the 60s, we've been really engaged with how do we police? How do we engage with communities? How do we serve people that they all have different needs and wants? And, and this complexity policing is so vast this social net has failed in some ways and the police have stepped in to fill it. And I think we've gone beyond the origins of policing communities and filled gaps that perhaps aren't natural to us, but we're trying to make it work. Um, I think it's the best time to be a police officer and best time to be a police executive because I think there's social permission to do things that are different. There's social permission to engage with people differently, think differently, perhaps speak differently, take different action. And I think 
that's why this is the right time for these yeah. practices to take hold. Yeah. It's really promising, I think. Yeah. As they say at Amica, empathy is our best policy. Whether you need auto, home, or life insurance, they're ready to help you protect the things that matter most to you. They're a mutual company, customer-owned, in service to you. Amica representatives are here when you need them, and you can take comfort knowing a real person will be there on the phone to take care of you because the greatest measure of their success is your satisfaction. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile, third line free on essentials via monthly bill, credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. And you're also, you have a culture of people who are used to doing, Dan pointed this out to me, who are used to training, who are used to thinking about, like, working on skills, and that's just part of the culture of this place. Good point. Of the that's profession, frankly. Great point, yeah. because we're really good at finding those, I call them perishable skills. Yeah. The, the shooting, driving, defensive tactics, all, the law is always changing. And what we're doing with mindfulness practices is we're saying, look, we're going to give you a set of tools. You take it, you use it for the whole you, personal and professional, make it what works for you. Maybe a little quirky, maybe a little bit different than Dan does, or maybe different than somebody else does, but you make it yours and continue to practice it and master the skill. And I think there is, you've got, it's a great point because we train consistently. So we're used to that kind of cadence. Huh. How do you imagine it helping uh, your officers? And, and very specifically, what, what can it do? If, you're, if I'm an officer, how does this help me do my job better? So I think a couple ways. One is that if, if we are more aware of the unfolding experience, then I think it lends to uh, seeing the environment differently. And from an operational or tactical perspective, if anything can get us to calm down and increase our, our cognition, increase our awareness, then it benefits us. The other is that for self, there are acute chronic and cumulative stressors, really the toxicity of, of policing, things we often don't talk about. If we can build resilience, then we are more healthy throughout our career and at the end of our career. I see a lot of broken people that have closed off their heart and their soul because it, it saves them from uh, suffering. And I think those are two real ways that the practice shows a lot of promise in policing. Hmm. We're at a time in the country where there's so much tension between the uh, the police and the community, mm. or there's so much tension between some police departments and some communities. Yeah. Do you think mindfulness and meditation is something that can actually help with these really profound and so sometimes 
violent um, uh, chasms that exist? Without a doubt, I think the practice shows promise for getting us to be present, not take triggers, not take the bait that makes us react. And if, if the practice can get us to see the perspective of another, to enhance our compassion, then I think it does lend itself to broader application in policing. And um, it's interesting, I met with um, members of our East Valley NAACP this morning, and we were talking about this, about how we engage with, with the My Brother's Keeper initiative from the White House, how we engage with young men and boys of color, how we engage with youth that their brains haven't fully developed yet. And there's a lot of science that says a young man's brain doesn't fully develop till he's 24, which is shocking for me because yeah. I hire men at 21. But um, Still not developed, <laughs> 45. Well, you know, <laughs> we're all works in progress. Uh, but if we can teach practices to get people, um, marginalized communities, um, caregivers, police officers, everybody, if we, if we can engage in practices that in some way offer us an ability to move through the dialogue with compassion and to learn from each other, then why wouldn't we encourage it? I think it shows a lot of promise in broader areas than just policing or medicine, aviation, and other high-stress environments. I mean, journalism. You guys are under as much fire as the cops right now. And so I think, you know, how does one stay kind of true to that noble endeavor, the why we enter the professions we enter? And if the practice shows promise there and helps us remain true to answering the call to journalism, uh, answering the call um, to policing or whatever profession we enter into, because we pour our heart and souls into it. We spend our majority of our lives in our professional environment. And if, if the practice helps us there and remember why we got into it, and returns us to kind of this place of gratitude, then we should continue practicing it. I don't know, it's funny, I was talking with Richard uh, Gerling last week. I'm uh, really connected with him in terms of what he's doing in this arena. And uh, he said, you know, you've basically been doing this stuff your whole life. I mean, as an athlete, we're taught to breathe. As, as a police professional, we're taught to breathe. We called it combat breathing back in the day so we could have clarity. And in all these environments, we're taught to breathe and to calm ourselves so we can be fully present. So I appreciate that you wanted to come to Tempe and that you're bringing this to the masses. <laughs> Doing our best. And I'm committed to being 12% happier. Well, you it sounds like a book idea. <laughs> <laughs> How to go from 10 to 12. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, overachiever. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, one of my co-hosts on Weekend Good Morning America, uh, Ron Claiborne, when I put my book out at first, he um, made a fake book jacket. It was called 11% Happier by Ron Claiborne, and he held it up on the air, and he said, look, if you're only going to buy one book, do the math. <laughs> right? You get an extra percent. <laughs> yeah, exactly. so, so what have you found the most surprising about this journey of yours? Well, so there's all the stuff we've learned about what gets in the way, mm. and those, those include um, people who assume they can't. Well, the problem you had when you first mm -hmm. heard about meditation, I can't do this because I can't clear my mind. Can't that's stay a, that's still. one of the things we found. The other is I don't have time for this, and so we've been talking mm. to people about ways you can slot it into 
parts of your day where actually you do have time, like right before you go to bed or right before you get out of your car, before you go into the house or your office, you know, you might be able to. And also the other thing we pointed out is that it don't, you, only, you don't need 30 minutes for this. It's great if you have it, but if you only have one minute, two minute, three minute, five minutes, like that's, that's cool. Um, the other th- thing we've been finding is some people, and this is, uh, these two uh, obstacles are definitely issues that you deal with. One is, um, it's going to make me look weird. People are going to make fun of me. Right. Um, and also, uh, it might it might force me to lose my edge. Dan, try being a woman in police work. There's a lot of risk of not looking hardcore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was thinking right? about that. Right? Yeah. And so, that is a really interesting place. It's like, what is this yeah. construct of a police yeah. officer? What's this construct of a, of, uh, of a man in society today? And... What is, how will you push against, against the edge of that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to ask you about that. How, how do you push against the edge of that? Do you feel you're able to exhibit qualities that aren't traditionally seen as uh, in that kind of more, you know, the, chief, the role of the chief, that traditional masculine paragon of, like, steeliness, you know? Twisted steel. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I, I guess I arrived at a place where I found the benefit of embodying some of the more feminine traits. And it doesn't mean feminine as in frou-frou, but I think yeah. what it says is, I think I looked at Eastern thought and the yin and yang and masculine traits and the feminine traits. Yeah. And I really think that there's more social permission, kind of this fluid approach, that one doesn't have to give up compassion to be courageous. One doesn't give up one to achieve the other. And so I arrived at kind of this, in this intellectual endeavor, I also found that there was a lot of strength in the emotional side and the, uh, the other things that make us people. And I think the fluidity is, is really important because it, I think it takes away a lot of the, what you're supposed to do. And it just gives this kind of pathway to authenticity, just be what the situation calls for. Uh, do what uh, the individual needs. I think it increases some pathways for us to just be authentic. And it resonates sometimes, it doesn't resonate others, but I'll tell you, um, I mean, even as a chief, I have to be, I have to qualify and I have to be tactically sound and physically fit and uh, I have to be proficient in all the tools and all the tactics. Uh, but I think there's also a different approach that society and really policing has said we have some permission to engage in so to the extent that i think those feminine figures in masculine fields and masculine domains are kind of on the periphery still a little bit uh, that may give us i guess some some permission to try some new things many if not most of the best leaders i've ever had in my professional context have been have been females hmm interesting and I think it's, I, I really applaud you for doing what you're doing. Doesn't, bringing this to people doesn't make a man less masculine in terms of the male sense. I, I really think it strengthens you. And I applaud the men. Look at the men you met today in Tempe. Those are very masculine figures, played mm. sports in college, and they are yeah. really incredible warrior type figures that they they have 
recognize they don't lose what makes them a man by engaging in some of these practices and engaging yeah. in the expansion of compassion. Yeah. Really remarkable people. Yeah, one of the things we were talking about is that I, one of my, one of the obstacles that I encountered as I was trying to, or as, as I was contemplating meditation was that I'm, uh, I'm not really in the market for, you know, getting in touch with my emotions. It's not interesting to me. Uh, but the emotions are there anyway. So Good either point. you see them clearly or, as yeah. Jeff says, they own you. And uh, that has been, that, and I think that actually talking about that with your men and women, I think it, it was obvious that that, that made mm. sense to them. Because you go into a, a tough situation or you go come home from work after a tough situation and your options are squash your emotions, drink them away, uh, or actually see them for what they are so that they, uh, so that you can process them. Sure, it's medicate or meditate. Yeah. Those are really some of <laughs> yeah. your options, right? Yeah. And yeah. great thing about meditation, it takes no equipment. Sure. You don't need anything. And that's remarkable. I mean, I, I'm a runner. I run halves and full marathons. And I mean, I need my shoes. And nowadays, I need my GPS and I need my fuel and I mm -hmm. need all my stuff. Mm -hmm. But meditation really offers you this equipment free yeah. liberation, yeah. this equipment free kind of practice that enriches your life. Well, that, and that literally is the trajectory of realizing that you don't need anything. I mean, in every way. That every, that every moment is complete in its own way. There's nothing that needs to be added on to it. You know, that becomes more and more the baseline that feels that is available. That this, there's something inherently satisfying or full about each, each moment. And it's only, it's only your ideas that something's wrong with it that are what make it a problem. Hmm. Uh, and then, so the, the, the paradox there is how do you have that position and still be motivated to make a difference? Yeah, you, you can, because having that position is what creates the efficiency. It's what creates the clean signal to allow you to act when you need to act. There's no interference. There's no, all the interference that comes with, like, fighting with your life, fighting with the present moment, trying to pretend it's, it should be different in some way or trying yeah. to negotiate with it. But you can drop all that. What's left is just the, this clear, centered awareness that can then act more effectively. That's the trajectory. We, you know, that it's an ideal, but it does seem to be play out in people's lives when you talk to people who've been sure. practicing for a while. Sure. I don't think I've I've completely achieved that. I think it's going to take a <laughs> lifetime. Me either. So, yeah. So it's, it's a long road. It's interesting. On Friday night, a commander and I were sitting down with men and women from the organization, professional staff, and sworn that that have not performed well on oral boards. Hmm. And so we were sitting down talking about the practices and the discipline to kind of engage in the practices when you're on the spot. That's a tough, yeah. ooh, yeah. that kinda is tough. Like kind of like you are right now. Okay, I f you're right. But you've been just handling it. Well, yes, and there's, there's great consequence for them when they're sitting there in policing. If you want to promote, if you want to go to detectives or a specialty, you have to take an oral board test. Yeah. And so what we were talking about and what we engaged with them on were some of the practices. And then we went into uh, some of their fears were regarding, well, gosh, I looked at this panel member and he wasn't writing anything. So did that mean that I wasn't saying what I was supposed to say? And so we talked about some of the practices of just letting that just pass through, acknowledge it and just let, it, mm -hmm. let that pass through and the discipline that it takes to yeah. just say, okay, I'm freaking out in this very moment and let that go. Yeah. Don't try to judge based on what you're yeah. seeing in this unfolding experience. Just take it in and say, 
okay, thank you. And then just proceed. Yeah. I, I didn't know how to teach them that, but yeah. I did offer some resources for them so they could engage just as you said. Yeah. It's unfolding. Don't try to control it. Don't try to take it somewhere. Don't judge it. Just let it go. Yeah. Let it go through. I think there's, um, in what you're saying, there's also a really important compassion piece to keep in mind, which is that is this, this is a kind of ideal to, to, to aim for, that mm-hmm. you inevitably in life, some new level of intensity is going to come in. No doubt. And you have got to give yourself a break when that happens because you will, you'll lose it. You know, yes. some intensity will come in, you won't act your best, you'll be reactive, you'll be overwhelmed, and then afterwards it's like, okay, that just shows you where there's still work to do. It's not, and that's just, there. it doesn't matter who you are. There's going to be something, some intensity that's going to come up at some point that's going to potentially be unmooring for a bit. And it's just about recognizing that. That gives you a lot of compassion for other people because mm. everyone's in that. Everyone's working with different thresholds, you know, but there is sure. a threshold. Yeah, it's interesting with um, Richard Gearling when we were going through the two and a half day intensive retreat, I found that I'm much more compassionate with other people than I am with myself. Yeah, well, we've talked Classic. a lot about this. Yeah. Wow. And so you hold yourself to a very high standard. Apparently, I do. I uh, I was there with Chief Jennifer Tejada of the the Emeryville, California Police Department, and we were going through the training together. So then we could kind of be champions, advisors, and advocates for this promising practice. And we just were shaking our heads because we thought, wow, we are such kind, compassionate people when it comes to everyone else. We cut ourselves no slack at all. Mm. And so she and I, as kind of colleagues and friends, are really trying to help each other through that. And I don't know, have you found that that's like the primary obstacle for people? For some people. (laughs) Yeah, I was listing some of the obstacles before, and that's absolutely one of them, which is uh, people feel like I'm, I'm... Busy taking care of everybody else, mm-hmm. and I'm, I, I don't. It's self-indulgent if I dedicate this time to, to myself. Okay, I, I will offer that I heard. I, I have no attribution for it, but I heard this: that there's really two kind of definitions for selfish. In in the United States, in the English language, we say selfish is to do for oneself at the deprivation of others. Whereas Eastern thought has two real definitions. One is the typical. You know, North American definition has to do for oneself at the deprivation of others, but they also offer that there's a second one that says to do for self so I can be of greater service to others. Yeah. I have no idea if that's true. I have no idea where it came from, but I've latched onto it as this piece that if I take five minutes to sit in my chair and to do this, I will be of greater service to others. Whether that is acting to safeguard somebody holding, you know, grabbing a criminal, uh, taking someone to jail or comforting someone when they're suffering. I, I think yeah. uh, the practice helps us yeah. do that for others. You know, it's interesting when you, historically, when you look at the, the lives of great change makers, like the great sages and saints, and uh, there's always a pattern of withdrawal and return. There's a pattern of withdrawing, working on yourself, you know, you're, mm. you know, working through this, these things, so then when you return, you can be more effective. And it's seen as common sense, that understanding that those are the two, that's the rhythm. Uh, and yet we have such high, we're such, because we're such doers in the West, it's like go, 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 do, 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 act, act, act. We can't, we don't take that time to, for that other side, for that, to, with that withdrawal side of going in, working, but that's what creates the, the capacity. Hmm. If you don't do it, eventually, well, you just see it. People burn out, they freak out, they, 
you know, they just fall apart. Um, so it's common sense. Yeah, and there's a, the, you're, that really resonates with me because we have this really interesting idea that we work harder, we'll improve. Look yeah. at education. Kids, the days are longer. Yeah. The number of days kids are in school in a in a year or are more. There's more homework. There's more yeah. for them to do. But the achievement hasn't kept up with the yeah. the extra effort. Yeah, it's really good. That that's. Uh, I mean, it's funny. People think uh, exactly. Bear down harder. Yes. Bear down even harder. Bear down even harder. But what happens? You're just like deepening that feedback loop. You know, hmm. and and everyone's had the experience in their life of like. Doubling down, doubling down, doubling down, and finally they just give up, take a couple of days off, and guess what? Then all of a sudden they're that much more productive again. Mm -hmm. But if you just kind of mm -hmm. held, the, if you just held on to it, you wouldn't have, you know, it just it doesn't work that way. It's just such a uh, like a simple, simplistic understanding of who, how, how minds and nervous systems work. Do you think the the environment needs to change for that permission to creep in? Yeah. I think we have a sabbatical. We give a sabbatical in the city of Tempe. If you've been here 15 years, you basically, you take a month. And I would think, wow, 15 years is a long time of grinding it out and suffering to get that rejuvenation piece. Yeah. Uh, so I think there's not a lot of, uh, I guess I, I use the word permission a lot. I don't think there's a lot of space, permission or otherwise, for, for people to do that. Uh, I know in... Tempe, one of the things we've started in the command staff and executive team is the tap out unplug time. Yeah. Because most of us, we, we have our phones right next to us in the shower. Yeah. Because we, are, we have to be connected 24 hours a day. Yeah. Because of the very mandate of the profession that we're in. Yeah. And to be in command and executive, you're connected all the time. And so we are trying to institute some tap out, just get away and do for you, and we got this. Yeah. The others will will take it. But that takes a real kind of shared understanding of the benefits. Yeah. And um, it's not really the sexiest thing I've done. It's, par <laughs> it's hard for people to, yeah. to do. It's That's tough. Yeah. And when the problem is it's tough to get people to disengage and care for themselves, I mean, maybe that's a good problem to have. Uh, but yeah. uh, certainly is a problem. Yeah, I mean, I think what you're pointing to is it's like there's so much urgency. There are so many real huge problems. Oh. And the last thing people think that you need to do is actually, you know, is, is actually oh. lean on, away from yes. the problems. They think because you, your, your sense of responsibility and care for what's going on is so strong, you don't think yes. that you can let go. Yeah. yeah. That is really the, that was a, an epidemic in Tempe when I joined the team. Because the call was, if you're not here every minute of every day, you're a 70 percenter. Mm. And so shifting that culture has been really, really tough. Mm. I think, you know, policing and policy and open data and all the things that we do in policing uh, are really important. And that one, that internal culture to give permission for that to take yeah. place, whew, that's hard. Because there has to be a basis of trust that she's not just saying that she's actually going to be okay with it. Uh, so that's really interesting that you offered that. Yeah. Chief, thanks again for doing this. Thanks, Dave. Amazing. Yeah. It's really nice really to meet yeah. you. Thanks for what you're doing and bringing this out to yeah. people. Yeah. Thanks for being the guru. 
Okay, there's another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. If you liked it, please make sure to uh, subscribe, rate us. And uh, if you want to suggest topics we should cover or guests uh, we should bring in, hit me up on Twitter at Dan B. Harris. I also want to thank heartily the people who produce this podcast and really do pretty much all the work. Lauren Efron, Josh Cohan, Sarah Amos, Andrew Kalb, Steve Jones, and the head of ABC News Digital, Dan Silver. Uh, I'll talk to you next Wednesday. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.